Hello, you are listening to the Pioneering Today podcast with Melissa K. Norris. This is episode number 66, and it is five rules for foraging wild edibles. And I am really excited to talk with you guys today about foraging. So foraging is an art that our ancestors knew of and practiced. And it's an art that we need to learn today because it could very well save our lives. Not only that, it's really fun. We view it as a family learning activity. We go foraging as a family. In fact, it's one of our favorite things to do together. And that's including my kids vote as well. So they really enjoy it and we enjoy it. It's a great way to build up family bonds and to teach them skills as well. So it's a learning exercise. And then the third thing that I really love about foraging for wild edibles is the free food. If you are on a slim budget or if you're looking to go more organic, real food, healthy food, getting away from processed food and GMOs, there is nothing more organic and natural than foraging for wild edibles. So those are the three major reasons that we really like to do it as well. And I'm a firm believer in growing your own food with heirloom garden seed and preserving as much of that as possible. And if you've listened to any of my podcasts or read anything on the website, then you know that I'm a huge advocate of that and talk and teach about that a lot. But there is a beauty in being able to go out and harvest something that God has provided without any help or work on our part. And that's foraging. So from a preparedness standpoint, if you have to leave your home or your home is destroyed from a fire, you know, there was obviously this year in the Pacific Northwest, much of the West, there was a lot, lot of fires going on, wildland fires burning, and lots of people had to evacuate. Unfortunately, some of the homes were lost. So, It could be from a fire or another natural disaster. And most of us have our setup at home, if you're modern homesteading or into any kind of preparedness or just self-sufficiency, then your home is pretty well set up. You've got home food storage. We've talked a lot about that. But the great thing about foraging is if you have to leave your home or if something happens to your home, you can still step foot outside or wherever it is that you're going to be rolling relocating at and you're going to be able to feed yourself and your family if you have some foraging knowledge and skills. So that's why I'm really excited to talk about foraging today. And I'm digging in deep here with you guys. So foraging, simply put, is just going out into nature and gleaning wild edibles for your food. Now, there are a few rules that we need to follow with foraging, though, because as wonderful it is, it is, and it really is, it can also be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So I've got five rules for foraging wild edibles that we've got to adhere to. And the very number one first rule is only forage for food that you know for absolutely certain is safe. Foraging is not the place to be a rebel or to take risks. Kind of like canning. Foraging and canning go hand in hand. These are the two places. Now, I'm all about bending the rules um, and that kind of a thing. But these are two areas that we do not do that in. There are poisonous plants out there. And some of them have lookalikes. So that means that there's one version that is poisonous and harmful. And then there's another version that's completely safe and edible, but they look a lot alike. So those are the ones in particular that you have to be very careful with. 
a field guide that has photos is an excellent place to start. And anybody who goes out foraging, I highly recommend that you have a very detailed field guide, okay? And that you have read it beforehand so you kind of already know the things to start looking for. And then when you come up on a plant or that you think that you're going to forage and is it edible, take that field guide out and go over all of the characteristics again and look at the photo. And one of the field guides that comes up that's really good and really thorough and lists the lookalikes, has drawings and photos, and then it gives you the tips for positive identifications because that's important too that um, I have linked to in the show notes. And that's a it's a field guide to edible wild plants. So any of the stuff that I'm talking about today, if you're a new listener, then I have a com- the complete, it's actually a complete blog post, it's a complete article, not just show notes, available to you with all of the links to everything that we're talking about in pictures. So just go to melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button, it's on the upper right hand side, and go to episode number 66, and that's this episode, and you'll get all of the fun goodies in there. So for mushrooms... Because mushrooms are one of our favorite wild edibles, I have to tell you. But of course, as you know, there are poisonous mushrooms out there. So we got to be careful. So for mushrooms, I highly recommend this book. I actually bought it for my husband for his Father's Day gift, um, I think two years ago. And it's called All That the Rain Promises and More. And it's a field guide to mushrooms. And it has the edible mushrooms, poisonous mushrooms, just all the mushrooms in there um, when they start to grow their season, when they come on, where to look for them, where they're located at in the country, how to identify them, plus the photos, and then ways to prepare and eat them and the flavors that they have. Because mushrooms, believe it or not, actually have distinct flavors. Now, I love mushrooms and I know some of y'all are being like, well, they're a fungus and they're slimy and they're gross. Well, no, they're not. (laughs) Some kinds are, I suppose, but most of them aren't. In fact, one of our favorites, and we just, we got our first harvest of the season today, so I'm super excited. They're sitting on my counter right now. I'm looking at them. Uh, They're going to be tonight's supper, yay, is chanterelles. And chanterelle mushrooms are, we like to call them um, the chicken of the woods because they're actually a quite meaty mushroom. They are don't have a ton of water in them. They're not slimy at all and they hold up really well and they have excellent flavor. So there's nothing slimy about them. And the other one of our favorites that we do a lot of harvesting, but that is a spring harvest here is morel mushrooms. So those are two of our favorites. My kids love them. They don't really care for regular store-bought mushrooms, like the little brown button mushrooms or portobellas or anything, but they love the wild mushrooms. So, um, does my mama heart proud that they do that? <laughs> so I really would like to recommend that book, All That the Rain Promises and more, um, if you're going to be doing any kind of mushroom foraging specifically. And then the other one is more for just your edible wild plants. So a field guide is all well and good, but there's nothing like having a knowledgeable person that takes you out into the field for a hands-on lesson. So I'm fortunate enough in my family that we have been forging mushrooms for generations where we live. My grandparents taught it to my dad and my dad taught it to us kids and now we're handing it on down to our children. So it's definitely a family pastime and they've been, like I said, we've been doing it for years with no ill effects. So I am really fortunate in that regards, I feel. And so I have a full-on tutorial on how to forage morel mushrooms specifically. But the number one rule that goes with 
with um, our foraging is only forage food that we know for certain is safe. And when in doubt, do not consume a foraged item. So it kind of goes right along. I know I said this again, but with canning, if when in doubt, throw it out with canning. When in doubt, don't eat it if it's a foraged item. So we're going to go on to point number two in our rules. And that is to only forage food in a safe area area. So not only do we need to know that the food item that we are foraging is safe to eat, that it's edible, but we need to know that it hasn't been sprayed with chemicals or exposed to pollutants. So anything near a roadway is not a good candidate or not a good area for foraging because number one, if it's a county road or state road or anything like that, it's probably been sprayed. I know here where we live that the county comes through at least once a year, sometimes more, and sprays the sides of the roadways with weed killer uh, to keep the brush and stuff back. And you can put signs out, and some people do, that say no spray, please, if you don't want your property sprayed, obviously, and they will abide by that. But if you're out foraging and it's not on your area, then you don't know if that's been sprayed or not. So Usually, you know, ditches and stuff on on highways and roadways is not an area you want to get back far off the road where spray couldn't reach. And then another reason that we don't want to do it by roadways is think about all the, you know, splashes and stuff on the road from cars and the exhaust. It just a lot more dust, just a lot more pollutants are in the air near roadways and that's going to settle down on plants that are right near them. So that's kind of our rule is we just don't forage right on the road. Third rule here is to be a good steward. And what I mean by this is I am always shocked where we live because there's a lot of um, people who forage for the mushrooms here. It's kind of like gold city. <laughs> I mean, people go out and hunt for them. Uh, the hunting spots are super prized. You know, a lot of people won't share where they get their mushrooms from their spots and that kind of a thing. Uh, some people will, you know, but if you have a really big mushroom place where you know that the mushrooms are really prolific and they grow really well, most people don't share that spot with other people. So it was kind of funny, uh, you know, joke around, but it's pretty true as well. And out where we live, we live really rurally. So we live out in the country and there's lots of fields and forests to go and logging roads and stuff. But I'm always shocked. My father owns property along one of the highways here. And he has signs posted that, you know, it's a gated road and he has signs posted that say, you know, no trespassing, even though you don't have to have signs posted if it's private property, no trespassing is just the general rule in the law, but people post it obviously to remind folks. And I am always shocked that he has all of these signs up and obviously a locked gate at how many people will just park and go out and walk through and go onto his property to forage and he forages it himself. You know, our, our family has depended on that area and done the foraging. And so, and he's had people come out and be standing or parked right by the signs that say no trespassing and say they didn't see him. We've had him tear the signs down. And so, and then it's not that just, you just want to be stingy and that you don't want to share the items that you have there for forage. But if somebody is on your property and they get hurt, then most of the times, especially in today's society, then you're liable for them. They got hurt, even though they're on your property without permission. So unless you've asked for permission from the landowner, don't go on private property to forage. So be a good steward, get permission first. And if you're granted permission, then make sure you leave the property as you found it. So for example, we have um, our 
on our acreage, we have it sectioned off our field, our pasture, into three different sections of pasture for our cattle. And we rotate the cows from each section of pasture throughout the main growing season of our pasture so that they're always moving onto fresh grass. And then it gives um, one piece of the pasture a break, or then we'll put the chickens and the pigs on there. But So we practice land rotation on our pasture. So some of the times, some of our gates are closed when we're keeping the cattle in certain areas. And then when they're in a different field, then the gates will be open so that they can have access to their water. So at any given time, you could walk on our property and some of the gates are open and they need to stay open. And then other times those gates are closed and they need to stay closed. So if you are on someone's property, if a gate is open when you get there, don't shut it unless they specifically asked you to shut it because it's probably open for a reason. But then on the other hand, if that gate is closed, then make sure that if a gate's closed and you open it to go through it, make sure that you close and latch it back. And that's just being polite and, like I said, a good steward. So however you found the property that you've gotten permission to forage on, just make sure that you leave it that way. And obviously, if you you know have garbage or something with you, don't leave it. But I know you guys wouldn't do that, so I'm not even going to go into that part. <laughs> so also, and this is really important in being a good steward too with any kind of harvesting and foraging practices, is... You need to know enough about the plant that you're foraging that you don't wipe it out so that you don't harvest everything so that there's not any means for it to come back the next year. Now, obviously, things like dandelions aren't going to be endangered from overforaging in a field or yard. Dandelions are really prolific with the way that they reseed. Um, in fact, most people view them as an annoying weed. But then once you, and this is the other really cool thing about foraging, is once you start to discover what is safe and what is edible, you will look at your yard and your landscape in a whole new light. Because what you thought was like the bane of your existence as far as weeds go, when you find out that it's edible and the different things that you can do with it, you're going to be like, oh my goodness. And so these weeds no longer bother you, which is fantastic. So I didn't realize up until a few years back how beneficial dandelions could be. I didn't know that you could take the blossoms in the spring and you can dip them in batter and eat them. I didn't know that the leaves, when they're tender, you can just pick them and use them as a green. And you want to pick them when they're young so that they're not too bitter because as they get old and they grow more, they get really bitter. And most people don't care for bitter things. So with the young part on the dandelions is best. And then you can even take the root. You can take the dandelion root. I mean, I think all aspects of the dandelion plant are edible. So you can take the root, which they have this extremely long tap root. And so you know if you've ever tried to pull them up when you're weeding, they're kind of really hard to uproot because they have this really long, thick root that goes down, which is another reason it goes so far down and is so big that they're not affected as easily when you have, um, you know, droughts and that kind of a thing. The dandelion just is like the Energizer Bunny, it just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> so it's a great plant, but you can take the root and harvest the root and roast it and do lots of things with the root. So the dandelion is actually a pretty cool plant um, from a foraging aspect. So it's really fun once you begin to learn more about foraging. Like I said, you'll look at everything totally different and it's really cool. So dandelions aren't going to be endangered from overforaging, like I said. But if you're picking something like, say, a morel mushroom, and I've got a full article that goes into really in-depth detail on morel mushrooms. Because morel mushrooms, well, they're a cool mushroom because they pretty much grow everywhere in the United States, parts of Canada. Um, they're not really specific to just a certain region. So they're a cool foraging item as well. But 
you know if you forage morel mushrooms or you'll learn is that you always want to leave a part of the stem in the ground. And the reason that we do that is to produce spores for next year's crop because morels aren't grown like on mushroom farms. They're only grown in the wild and they grow by the spores. And so we have to make sure that we leave enough spores there when we're picking and harvesting so that they come back the next year. And then you'll also learn that you want to keep your mushrooms, morel mushrooms, in a breathable bag. So some people will use like a netted bag, fabric bag, paper bag, but not plastic. So that as you're walking and hunting, that the spores will fall out from the mushrooms that you've already harvested. And then you're seeding new spores, so new mushrooms, for following year's harvest. So you'll kind of learn as you really start to dig in deep with different things, just the different harvesting practices that you want to abide by. So that's generally all under rule number three for being a good steward. It's just to kind of know how it grows, how it procreates so that you make sure that you don't wipe anything out. Then um, our fourth rule on harvesting wild edibles, and that is how to prepare the wild edibles. So you really need to know the proper and safe way to prepare your foraged wild edible. For example, you should never eat wild mushrooms raw. Okay, these are not mushrooms that you can add raw to your salad like you can um, domesticated mushrooms from the stores, like the, you know, the little button mushrooms. You always should always thoroughly cook them to kill any bacteria that might be on them. In fact, I think there's some mushrooms that actually cooking them releases a form of toxin in them in the heat process and then it releases it so it's no longer in there that makes them safe to eat. So it's not always just bacteria. So you really want to get, like I said, you really want to get a really good field guide that goes into detail like the ones that I've linked to not only on how to identify them and harvest them, but also on how to prepare them safely. So some plants too, the fruit is safe to eat, but not the leaves. And that's kind of like rhubarb. The rhubarb stalks are safe to eat, but the leaves are actually poisonous. And there are some plants too that that's the case where the berries are safe to eat, but the leaves and the stems are not. So this is just where we really need to know on each individual item that we're harvesting the correct way to prepare it. Now, for preparing wild mushrooms, um, some of them are a little bit different. So the morel mushrooms need to be soaked overnight in salt water. And the reason that you do that is because the way the morel grows, it has little... Now, don't get grossed out on me, please. (laughs) But it has... It can get... Not all of them, but they're growing on the ground of the forest floor, okay? So they're outside. So they can get little bugs in them and sometimes little worms and just little creepy crawly things. So... It could be a protein source. You could look at it that way. But most people, if you're like me, I don't really want to eat that part. I don't want to eat the bugs. So you soak them overnight in salt water and that gets anything in them out. So most of the time you'll soak them in salt water and then you go the next morning and you'll see some little bugs in the water and you just drain them off. Totally fine. And then rinse them. And so the morels hold up well. I put them in the salt salt water bath, excuse me, um, overnight in the fridge and then take them out and rinse them really well. And then I chop them in half and clean them up before cooking. But most other types of mushrooms will break down too much if you soak them overnight or submerge them in water. So for things like shaggy manes, bear head, bear's head, lion's mane, and chanterelles, 
We brush off as much of the forest debris as possible with our hands or a paper towel or any kind of, you know, dish towel, kitchen towel. And usually the stuff that's on them is there's going to be little bits of dirt and pine needles and leaves. And that's usually pretty much all that's on them. So after we get off as much of the debris as possible just with your hands is I do a quick rinse under really cold running water for anything stubborn that's on and just kind of rinse that off. And then I lay them out on an absorbent towel before I cook them. So before we saute them or bake them or fry them or however it is that you're going to be cooking the mushroom. So generally speaking, we saute most of our mushrooms. So the morels, I do a, I bread them. Um, I whip up an egg and then take a little bit of flour and add in a little bit of salt and seasonings and then bread them and fry them. And oh my gosh, this year, because we had this drought, the drought that we had here in the Pacific Northwest, the mush- morel mushroom season this spring was horrible. We got, it was everybody I talked to. It was so horrible. There was only like, we got like five mushrooms. There was just, there literally was no morel mushroom season this year for us here over on the west side of Washington state. It was really, I'm really still disappointed if you can't tell (laughs) about that. And that's one of the thing with foraging. You never know how the season or the crop is going to go. So usually most years it's good, but sometimes, you know, like this year, the morale season just was not here for us. So I'm getting hungry talking about it because I did not get my fill this year. (laughs) So I'm hoping next spring we'll have enough rain that we will get our morels up. But thankfully, the chanterelle season, we got some rain. Hallelujah. Uh, praise the Lord. We've gotten enough rain that sh- the chanterelles are just coming on. So I'm super excited for that mushroom season. And chanterelles, what we like to do with them, they are delicious when they're sauteed with some butter and onions and garlic. We've done them roasted that way as well. In fact, if we get a really big haul, I will saute up a pan for supper that night and then I'll do the um, two other baking dishes that way in the oven and I'll roast them and then take it and vacuum seal them in probably like two or three cup portions, vacuum seal them and toss them in the freezer. And then that way throughout the year, I can just take them out and thaw them and cook them up and I'll add them to spaghetti or just even by themselves, just like that. They're phenomenal. And the chanterelles hold up very well to being frozen and then thawing out again. They don't really turn mushy. Um, they, I was very impressed with the texture from being frozen and then thawed. They did really well. So if you get enough of a haul with the foraging, then you can preserve them too, which is fabulous. Then one thing that we did, and this was a newer mushroom to us, and it's a bear's head or lion's mane. Sometimes it's called both. They look really similar that we found. And this was, I had never had them before until last year. And so I'm excited. This is our second year going into hunting form and they're a bit more rare. They're harder to find. They grow up tall on trees and here usually on old growth or up pretty high is where they grow. So they're harder to find. And they we sauteed them just kind of at a low temperature with a little bit of butter and they are one of our newer favorite mushrooms they are really good so if you ever get a chance to find some of those highly recommend them super good now number five rule on our foraging that I want to get to is you want to test a small amount first of anything that you're foraging and eating that's wild edible so don't eat a large amount or a full serving of a wild edible the first time out or the first time you've ever had it so, and, and this is in regards to obviously any wild edible that we know is safe to eat and to consume. So what you want to do is you want to follow the instructions and prepare a small amount and then 
eat a few bites and then wait a couple hours or even till the next day to see if you have a reaction. So even though it might be perfectly safe, wild edible to consume, you could have an allergic reaction to it. Anything that we eat or put in our body, we have the potential to have an allergic reaction to. So, for example, plantain is considered an excellent herbal remedy, and we will be getting into medicinal and herbal use on a future episode. This one is just more on things for wild edibles, and some of them have crossovers, so no worries. We'll be talking more about that in the future. But So plantain is considered a really good herbal remedy. In fact, it's one I harvested. It's a wild edible that grows here like crazy. It's in my yard. And then I found out it had all these awesome medicinal properties. So I was super excited. So I went out and harvested a ton of it. It kind of grows all year here, except in the very middle of winter if we get a really, really hard frost or a lot of snow. But my mom was having some allergies. And so she went in for allergy testing and she found out that she's allergic to it. So while most people would say use plantain and would use it and not have any issues with it, she happens to be allergic to it. So I'm just saying this so that you take precautions with something when you're trying something new to make sure that you don't have an allergic reaction to it. So start small, take a, you know, use a really small helping to make sure that you don't have any reactions for it and then go for it and have it on as your full meal or, you know, eat the the full portion of it. So just a little bit of caution there that you want to use it. But like I said, this is true, not just for wild edibles, but for any food as well. And so I am really excited, you guys. I have created for you a free copy and it's a wild edible seasonable harvesting guide. So what I did is I broke down the main wild edibles and I put them in the seasons that they grow and are ready to be harvested. And I, so I created a guide for you. So, So I broke it down by fall, winter, spring, and summer. And some of the items in there Like for us, lamb's quarters comes on in the spring and you can harvest that here all the way through fall. So some of them that I put it down when you can begin to harvest it, but it may overlap and go into other seasons for you. And then other of you, like where it's really super hot out, like if you're down in, you know, Arizona or certain areas of Texas, some of our items that are ready to harvest in summer, yours is probably going to be springtime. So I did most general rule of thumb. And the other thing that I did, so I'm really excited for you guys to just check out all of these awesome resources and get them in your hot little hands, is I have 25 items that I have linked to that are wild edibles, and I've linked to articles on how how to forage them, where to find them, and most of them include how to prepare them instructions as well. So you can go through the whole list. It's by alphabetical order. And like I said, I tried to pick wild edibles because there are a ton out there. And the ones that I picked, I tried to pick that are actually edible and that you will can use in everyday cooking, your everyday life, and that will fill you up. So there are some herbs that or wild edibles that are mainly just used for medicinally. Like there are some that you could make a tea out of them or a tincture, but they're not something that you're going to sit down and eat a whole plate full of, for example. So I didn't include those in this list because I I want this list to be something that we can go to and use to actually create almost full meals with. So these are things that you can, that are very, that are edible on, I guess, a larger scale. And some of them can also, there's a lot of them that can go back and forth and you can still make teas with and other things like, for example, nettle leaf. So we have common stinging nettles here. And as a kid, those suckers Every time you would go out to play in the woods or the field or wherever in the springtime, those babies would just zap you. And I'm telling you what, those stinging nettles can pack a little punch. They leave the welts on the skin, drive me crazy as a kid, as an adult. 
Well, then I found out that they make a wonderful medicinal tea, which I started using. And then they're also great, especially in the spring when they're young. And that's, I've noticed that with most of the wild edibles, especially things with leaves where you're eating the leafy part of the plant, it's, you usually want to harvest them when they're young so that the leaves aren't tough or they don't develop um, a bitter or really strong taste. So kind of general rule of thumb when you're harvesting those kind of things is it's when it's more in its younger, tender stages. So for the nettle leaves, um, pick them in the springtime when they're coming up and when they're young and you can saute them with butter and garlic and just have them as you would like a, a wilted green, for example, or you can toss them into soups and stews or you can dry them, which I, we do some of both. You can dry them up and you could ground it into a powder if you wanted and add it like as a green powder to things that you're cooking or you can dry them up and then use it and make teas out of it. So you can make a tea out of it throughout the year. So I have a full-on tutorial on how to harvest the nettle leaf and how to preserve the leaves and that kind of thing and how to actually make the tea and all that fun stuff. So that's just one of the items in our list. And then there's also, there's berries and I've got wild asparagus and mushrooms. I really wanted to include mushrooms because mushrooms are one of the our largest parts of what we do with our wild foraging and wild edibles is mushrooms. And that's partly, like I said, we live in the Pacific Northwest and it's normally quite damp. And so mushrooms grow quite well here. And so I've included links to our favorites of the mushrooms in there as well. So I want you to go over and grab that. Like I said, at this time, I have over 25 resources there and wild edibles listed for you so that you can go to. And it's just a great way to think of it, you know, as an education, you know, the Native Americans and a lot of the indigenous people to different areas. That's how they supplemented a lot of their diet was with foraging and the wild edibles. And so it's kind of become like, you know, one of the things, a lot of the things that we talk about on the Pioneering Today podcast is things that are lost, lost arts or people don't know how to do as much of anymore. And I just really feel privileged that I get to share them with them and that we get to learn from each other so that these ways don't die. So I want to thank you for listening and for being a part of the community. And if you have experience with foraging or you go and you see an item that I don't have on the list and you're like, oh my goodness, you got to add this. It's fantastic. Please, please, please leave that in the comments so that other people can read it and learn from it too. Because I have to tell you what, I have some of the, you guys are some of the best listeners and you leave me some of the greatest information in the comments. And so I get to learn from you and you get to learn from me. And I think that is just fabulous. So thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you go over to click on podcast episode number 66 and get your free seasonable harvesting guide for the wild edibles. Okay. Talk to you soon.